Lots of books have been written on the subject of happiness. Most of them are self-help books that teach you how to be a happy person and what strategies you have to follow in order to become one. Given that I have seen the word science, I'm doing air quotes here, thrown around a lot lately, in this specific matter, and of course in general, I think it is better to give sound happiness advice backed by actual scientific research. This is Ethan Misagi, and you're listening to Overdosing on Intellect, and today we are talking about the science of happiness. Welcome to today's episode. The topic of positive psychology and happiness, or subjective well-being as some researchers call it, has been studied a lot during the last few years. Many factors that we might think are affecting our happiness levels have been considered. Some of those factors are race, age, gender, socioeconomic status, level of education, religious faith, personal relationships, so on and so forth. Researchers normally define subjective well-being using three sub-factors. Those sub-factors are high frequency of positive effect, infrequency of negative effect, and high life satisfaction. Although subjective, these factors could be studied using self-reports, and that is actually the method of choice in this field. In layman terms, happiness is associated with how satisfied we are with our lives in general and how good we feel on a day-to-day basis. So one specific paper that I looked at for this episode reported a few analyses that resulted in the following. Socioeconomic status, educational attainment, family income, marital status, and even religious commitments could only account for as little as 3% of the difference between happiness levels of people tested, which means that they're not really the determinants of a happy life. However, people who have close personal relationships, or people who absorb themselves in their work, or the ones who set goals for themselves and try to attain them, are actually the ones who are happier in general than others. There have been studies of twins in this field as well. So these studies have shown that a large proportion of optimism and pessimism, that is the happiness or sadness we see normally in people, is predetermined in our genes. It's interesting, right? The most cited figure is actually 50%. So if you call this a set point, the set point of our happiness is 50% determined by our genes. But... Wait a minute, you might say. How did they reach this conclusion? That's a good question. Well, they did cross-time and cross-twin analyses of reported happiness levels. So, you know, twins went on to have different life paths over a long period of time, right? Yet still, the baseline of their happiness levels stayed the same. Of course, they changed jobs. Uh, Some of them got promoted. Some of them got out of their jobs. Some of them got other relationships, some of them started new relationships. So you see, like, there are a lot of things going on in their lives. But yet still, 
50% of their happiness level stayed the same each time they were tested and was almost the same between the identical twins. Thus, the set point of happiness, I'm going to emphasize again, the 50% that we just talked about is believed to be hereditary. This set point may be related to personality traits that are believed to be arisen from neurobiology. So until we find a way to tweak that part of the happiness scale, we are of course left with changing the other two categories, namely life circumstances and intentional activities. Let's start with life circumstances. This category is responsible for about 10% of our happiness and Basically, as its name suggests, it is about life circumstances. So, for example, getting a raise, being promoted, uh, remarrying after being divorced, or making a lot of friends, or being healthy are some of the examples of, of positive circumstantial factors. There are negative circumstantial factors, of course, um, like suffering from a childhood trauma, getting sick, or getting into a car accident. One of the main reasons why these factors don't take up more of our happiness bucket is a process called adaptability. We learn to adapt to the positive or negative stimuli after a while, especially if they are constant or repeated. So suppose we're, we're always healthy, right? Unless we become sick. So we get adapted to our health. Then if we become sick, um, our happiness levels go down. But we become accustomed to that after a while, because it is consistent. And then we become healthy again, our happiness goes up a little bit. But then because we are again happy again for a while, then we adapt to that as well. So this is how adaptability works. Now, you might say that's 50%, that is 10%. What about the next 40%? I have the answer for that. The answer for that is intentional activities. So research has shown that exercising regularly and putting the effort to do so increases good mood and the peak happiness attained because of it might continue for at least six months. Setting personal goals and trying to get to them is also a happiness booster. Practicing positive virtues such as gratitude, forgiveness, and hope also work like happiness interventions. These activities can also help a person get a new experience on a daily basis, which helps increase the positive mood even further. You're probably confused right now asking yourself, but wait a minute, how is that we adapt to the life circumstances, but not intentional activities? Exercising regularly should be as adaptable as being healthy, right? No, not right. First of all, there is a refractory period, as they call it, for activities. If we find that period and repeat the activity after the refractory period has passed, we are removing the possibility of becoming adapted to the activity. Plus, the self-initiated nature of the activities helps too. Also, you know how they say change brings happiness? It affects this too. Changing the way we engage in these activities moves them from a regular, constant, boring behavior to something that gives us joy every time, as it is different each time. So suppose you go to, to the gym today and it's your leg day. The next day you go into the gym and it's your um, upper body day. Uh, I think from the words that I chose, you kind of know that I'm not a gym person, but whatever, let's continue. So one more thing here, count your blessings and you are counteracting the adaptation process. 
Seriously, you are avoiding the act of them being taken for granted and thus you being adapted to them. Okay, so doing some research on the topic, I wanted to know what specific strategies I could follow to become happier in life. I'm sure you're kind of curious to know too, so let's get to it. First of all, it is suggested that the intentional activities a person engages in should be a fit to that person. For example, not everybody um, might benefit from four hours of exercise every single day. So you'd have to make sure the activity you're engaging yourself in is one that is in accord with you, your needs, your personality, your schedule. Consider a project or activity that is a better fit to you. You like it doing, am I right? Therefore, you will actually be interested in putting the effort in initiating it rather than procrastinating on it for days on end. This brings me to the second point here. So putting an effort to initiate an activity and putting more effort into maintaining that activity are also important. We can look for meaning in most of the activities we try to maintain. If we find something that is meaningful for us, regardless of whether it is fun or not, we're going to put that extra effort into maintaining that. If not, it's going to be a whole lot difficult to keep doing them. Of course, the question in such a situation is, why are we doing this activity if there is no meaning to it? That's a question each person has to answer on a case-by-case basis. So, all being said, practicing mindfulness, gratitude, being hopeful, setting up goals and setting up plans to reach them, engaging in activities and experiences that we like, doing acts of kindness, and nurturing interpersonal relationships are some of the ways to increase happiness. Becoming happier yourself has also a ripple effect on the people around you. Your friends, your partner, your neighbors, your co-workers, and each and every person that has some kind of a relationship with you is going to feel happier as a result of your happiness. Another point. People say money cannot buy happiness. This depends on what the money is being spent on. If it is being used for new experiences or if it is going to charity, money can actually buy happiness. However, if it is being spent on objects that we might get habituated to in no time, then no, money cannot buy happiness. Finally, I want to emphasize that when we are happy, there is a high chance that we will become successful. But being successful in and of itself is not going to make us happy. Consider yourself warned. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. To get more information on my show, specifically the references I use for each episode, please visit the podcast section of my website at emisagi.com slash number sign podcasts. That is E-M-I-S-A-G-H-I dot com slash the number sign and then podcasts. Find this show by searching for Overdosing on Intellect anywhere you get your podcasts from and make sure to subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher to never miss an episode. Please also consider leaving feedback about the show on the platform you get your podcast from to help the show reach a broader audience. Until the next episode, plan your happiness, attain your goals, and be happy. Be happy.